You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jin Wilkin and JT English. Hey, hey. hey. Good to be here. Hey, hey. We're drinking out of uh, JT English okay. coffee mm-hmm. coffee cups enough, right here. Enough. Let's get to this podcast. No, no. no. <laughs> you, you can jump on Instagram or Twitter and find a picture, I'm sure, of our great coffee sleeves that we have here. We'll talk a little, <sighs> a little about them in the, in the episode. That's the best looking coffee you've ever had. There's no doubt about oh, that, man. Gosh. You're a handsome guy. <laughs> on today's episode, we're going to explore Acts 20 and 21. Hope you enjoy the discussion. So here we are, and uh, Jen and I are, uh, are actually JT's drinking coffee as well. But it's not special coffee. It's like not. Ours. It's not. I wonder. I, I don't know if I don't know if I mean. Obviously, the audience can't see, but Jen and I have modified our coffee cups with what are I, I can only imagine are JT commissioned custom yeah. custom sleeves, <laughs> coffee sleeves that have JT on there. Um, with, a, the with a quote that says the local church is starving for theologically grounded leaders. Southern is the premier place to train them. And, are you, are uh, you mocking the mission of God? Oh my gosh, Jen! How I mean, like he cuts a striking coffee is that sleeve. A, is doesn't that a he? smirk or is it a no? I think it's a respectful. That was the face smile. I looked right after I fired you both. Uh, no, this is <laughs> this is the smile of a man who just commissioned coffee sleeves with his face on them. <laughs> This is, yes, I am going to be drunk on a warm beverage. No, we have coffee sleeves that Southern made that Jen and I saw on Twitter and immediately called our, we called in our, the, the scope of our network and said, we're going to need those, whatever, whatever it takes, <laughs> whatever it takes. We want the coffee sleeve. In fairness, I had no idea they were going to do that. I'm going to laminate mine. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, no. Yeah. This is okay. going to be safe forever. I'm doubling down on my, my, uh, my Jen inception selfies. Uh, <laughs> He said, "He said I'm going to get even with you," and I was like, "No, JT, this is the payback for what you've done. You're, you're doing the math wrong." It's true. If the audience doesn't know, one of JT's favorite things to do is in a crowd. If Jen gets asked for a selfie, to take a selfie of himself. <laughs> getting uh, we call it selfie else. inception. Yeah, selfie inception. My other favorite thing to do is whenever she she always gets on a plane before oh, me because yeah. she has like elite platinum. I do not have that much status. Uh, and, and so she's always on before we are. And I walk by as if I don't know her or I know who she is, but don't work with her. And I go, are you Jen Wilkin? My wife loves your books. And then I take a selfie. <laughs> and then awesome. often what happens to the person sitting next to you? Well, either they act super awkward for the rest of the flight or they want to talk about my books. Yeah, they're like, it's really not I it. thought you were Jen Wilkin, but I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> but we were on a flight recently where um, he we were coming back from yes, Indy. Did we talk about this, about this yeah, on I the show? So. I don't know. We ended up, we were speaking at different engagements in the same city and we ended up on the same flight back. And so just randomly. Um, it's just randomly. And so we're checking in and uh and 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 jt's like oh i'm gonna make fun of you on the airplane and i go oh what seat are you in and he tells me what seat he's in and so i got on and selected the seat right next to him (laughs) (laughs) and then i was like i'm gonna get on the plane before you because i have status that's hilarious and when you try to get into your seat I'm going to say no. <laughs> and when you need to use the bathroom halfway through the flight, I'm going to say mm, no. That's awesome. And all of those you things got, You got outplayed, man. She was yeah. playing 40 I chess. I know how to escalate, though. You do. And I had to sit like 20 rows back from where I normally do just to <laughs> yeah. harass him, and it was worth it's it. He's the one closest to the bathroom. Right. That's my status. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like well, I, I have to tell F. you, this is the best tasting cup of coffee I've had the in a best. long time. Contents Tastes inside like are beautiful. Yeah. Just follow, find one of us on Twitter or Instagram, and you can find this picture, and you will also rejoice in this incredible coffee sleeve that we have here. Hey, um, I was thinking whenever I was prepping for this week, 
of boring sermons because the title of this week I'm very proud of, uh, as you know, uh, is when the sermon kills. Uh, come on, I mean, like, do you mean slay? Yeah, if you, it's if, whatever yeah. you need it to mean, JT. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. why he's so proud of it. Exactly. Uh, and uh, if you, and I just want to say, if you have not pulled your car over and are laughing or clapping at that title, then this show is probably not for you uh, because that sermon, that this title is this perfect. Is- this is your best one. Thank yeah. you. I really appreciate that. Well, when I was thinking about it, I kept reminding myself, uh, I was trying to think of like, what's the most boring sermon I've ever heard? And I could think of one story that I've never told you both. Okay, if you, let's hear it. If you say it's mine, we're going to have a whole other conversation. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, JT was preaching. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So my brother and I went to London for his senior trip and he did not care a thing at all about going to see Charles Spurgeon's church, the church where he had preached Mm -hmm. at. But Mm -hmm. I, of course, was like, we have to go. So we crossed London. I mean, you know, obviously we got lost 15 times. This is before smartphones. Well, certainly before we had smartphones and uh, we did not know where we were going. So we had like map quested directions. We get there, we get to this guy's church and of course, you know, Spurgeon's not preaching that right, Sunday. Not that um, week. Not that week. Um, long since gone. And the guy gets up and he begins like to preach. He he preaches for over ninety minutes. Oh my wow. word. Over ninety minutes. My brother is staring daggers at me. Because he is like, <laughs> I this is my senior trip. I cannot believe I'm here. And it was listen, that dude, he might be a lights out preacher, but that day, whoo, not man, so good. It was I, I just sat there and I kept my brother kept going, when can we leave? When can we leave? I was like, we cannot leave in the middle of this guy's sermon. We just can't do it. I can't allow it to happen. You could have. But though. we should have. Yeah, we should have. It was painful. It was painful. I thought my I, his sermon didn't kill me, but I, I thought my brother might. It might. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought, I thought he might. Man, I don't have thought of that. My most boring sermon I've heard. Yeah, I've That's because you forget the ones yeah, that are boring. That's true. I've heard some zingers, though, I think. Mm. Yeah. We don't have a lot of boring preaching around here. We have no, so many good preachers no, around we're here. Spoiled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Spoiled mm-hmm. for preachers. Well, in this sermon, we don't know that it was boring, but we certainly know that it killed somebody. <laughs> um, and we're going to look at it today. Acts 20 opens up with what is essentially a map. Like you just, you roll into Acts 20 and it says, hey, after the uproar ceased, which is the riot at Ephesus, which we talked about the last time we were in Acts, it says Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell. He departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. He spent three months there. A plot was made against him by the Jews. As he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. They went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So here we are. Guys, one of the most riveting passages in all of scripture. No. Am I right? You don't mean that. I don't. I loved it. Well, sometimes you kind of juke us like that, though. Yeah, you're like, oh yeah, that genealogy is so exciting. This is an, this is a great example of one of those. It's a, it's not a genealogy, but man, does it read like one, right? It Where really you're like, why do I care about any of this? A lot of names that you're just throwing darts at. Yes, essentially. and it's so good. What's good about this? Well, so remember where we are, right? Like we're in Paul's third missionary journey, and we're seeing that now something new is happening, or maybe more appropriately, something old is happening. Yeah. Whereas we've seen his influence expanding up to this point, now we're going to see him reinforcing it. So he 
he's going back to places that he's gone before. And we know that during this time period that's described in this paragraph, if you compare it to his epistles, that 1 Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians, and Romans are written during this time. And they actually give a little bit of insight into why he's making this trip. He's making this trip because he's gathering an offering from all of these churches that he intends to take to the church in Jerusalem. Yeah. So in these seven verses, what seems like just a bunch of names and places yeah. behind the scenes, this is the kind of template of his journey of collection. Right. So we get the we get kind of where he goes and then we get this list of these names of guys and each of those people represents one of the churches where he has taken a significantly sized church where he's taken up the offering. Hmm. Um, you you start to go, "Oh, I remember these names from other parts of mm-hmm. the book of Acts." And and you, you might notice that you don't see a representative from the church at Philippi right. named in the list, but that's because most scholars would say because Luke, who's writing the account, would have actually been hmm. the, the travel companion who was representing that church. So basically, hmm. this is like an uh, an entre- it's a it's a um, a delegation okay. um, from these other churches who they've not just taken up an offering; they have representatives from each of the churches that are now going to process to Jerusalem. And remind Paul. remind the audience if they can't remember. Uh, why the offering's being collected for Jerusalem? Um, just so that Paul can make a good impression when he gets to Jerusalem. Okay. No, not really. <laughs> I mean, it won't hurt, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's, it's it's a display of unity. I mm-hmm. mean, if you think about it, and and also, I, I think Paul is anticipating that he might he's run into difficulty just about everywhere that he's gone, yep. and so it does help that he will show up saying, "Hey, this is this is a, an offering from churches that are largely Gentile right. to a church that is largely Jewish in yep. nature." And we've seen this a little before. We saw the church at Antioch do something like this um, when there was a when there was a, a famine in the area. Yeah. They organized a gift like this. Uh, so, and and then another really cool thing about it is when you start paying attention to the names that are there, you find out that you have one of the the nicer pairings in here that <clears throat> kind of draws our attention is Aristarchus and Secundus, mm. um, because Aristarchus's name sounds a lot like an English word. Yep. Sounds like aristocrat. Yep. He's probably someone who's high in society. And Secundus means number two. Hmm. So Secundus is probably the second servant in a household. So hmm. you would have Primus, the, mm-hmm. the highest slave, and then hmm. you would have Secundus, the second slave. And yet these two guys are now travel companions yeah. because the the de, you know the, the social designators have been removed in terms of their status in the church. Wow. I did not know any yeah, of that. Yeah, that's really cool, isn't it? It is. The end of Romans, we've talked about that, I think, on here before. Yeah. It has something similar mm. where you have uh, like the governor of the city and you have uh, then numbers used as people's names showing mm-hmm. that they're actually writing this letter together. They're in community together. Yeah. That these – the things that would have distinguished people before their new birth in Christ is no longer the distinguishing feature. Hmm. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. See, I like I was prepared to just skip right over these verses. Mm. Well, and, Kyle, most people are. Well, and we didn't. But gosh, that's really interesting. I I had not spent any time thinking about what was going on behind the scenes or what is going on uh, I guess above all of this journey here, but he gets to Troas. Yeah. And he's teaching. Mhm. And this story, I love this story. This is such a good story. It really is, right? It's so, a cautionary tale well, for anyone It gives every who, preacher a little, yeah. a little sense <laughs> it really of, hey, guys, so, so tell give us, me a break. Give us the story. Tell yeah. us the story here. Okay, so you have uh, Paul preaching, and you have—so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just read the verses. verses. This is Acts chapter 20. I'll read 7 through 9. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. 
There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man, Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep <laughs> as Paul talked still longer. This feels like a troll. Like, yeah, it really does. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. He was talking still, still longer. longer. <laughs> yeah. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Wow. Like that's – if you're the preacher in that situation and you're like, I, I'm so sorry. This is worst case, worst case <laughs> scenario. The word of God all up until Acts is bringing life and here it literally kills somebody. Yes. Yeah. It's, it, I've bombed hard. Yeah. Like bad. But nothing like I've that. I've never killed a person with a sermon. I feel a little bit like Paul probably felt here. Like you guys, you're just trolling me. Like that's I think what Luke oh, is doing here yeah, too. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Mm-hmm. But the mission of God goes forward. Yeah. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Through boring preachers and coffee sleeves. Um, uh, okay. So, but then, so then Paul goes down. I right. read these verses, and yeah. he says, "Oh no, no, no! He, he still has his life yeah. in him. He's not dead." And eventually, it shows. Yeah, he's he's alive. Mm-hmm. But was he alive or was he dead? This is like the Princess Bride scene. I've never he, seen that movie. No, do you mean it was only what is it? He's only yeah. half dead. Yeah, he's mostly. He's dead. mostly dead. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of Monty Python. That's I'm not dead that. yet. <laughs> That's what I was thinking too. That's hilarious. Uh, Poor Eutychus. We're just. You think he was dead? I, I don't know. I mean, they certainly thought he was dead, yeah? Well, my title here says Eutychus was raised from the dead. Yeah. So, what do you think? Well, it's weird. Like, in verse 9, it says he was taken up dead, but then Paul goes down and says, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. <laughs> yeah. So, there is there is a lot of discussion around mm-hmm. this, but I think there are really good reasons to conclude that this is a resurrection story. Okay. And so, one of them is that at the point that Eutychus falls from the window, who does not go and offer aid immediately? That would be Luke, who is a... Doctor. Right. So apparently whatever's happening here, Eutychus does not appear to need medical attention after he falls from the window. Can you you imagine Luke looked out the window and was like, nah, he's gone. He's gone, gone, man. Yeah. Uh, So there's that piece of it. Uh, But then the other piece of it is if you look at at the way that what Paul does is described in a different translation, it says taking taking him in his arms here, Mm -hmm. but the language around it is a a little different in other translations, and it's language that echoes – um, some imagery from um, from the Old Testament, and it's hmm. the stories of Elijah and hmm. Elisha, who both raise a young boy from the dead. Hmm. And so, um, and then not only that, but in Luke chapter four, so you know, it's always like one of the skills that we're trying to teach the people who are in the in the in the Bible studies is when you start looking for what's going on somewhere, how would you how would you form an opinion of, of what's happening, mm-hmm. and um, and and so when you start to think, huh, this sounds like Elijah and Elisha, which assumes obviously that you're familiar with the Old Testament, as, mm. as Luke would be assuming, mm. um, then you might ask, well, where else do we hear? Do we ever hear Jesus talk about Elijah mm. and Elisha? And you actually do in Luke chapter four, after he stands up and reads the scroll in the synagogue and they start to question his authority. They yeah. basically are like, isn't this the son of Joseph? And he um, he points to Elijah and Elisha as those who came in authority and did not come to who it was expected that they would come to. Mm. And so then we hear Luke here telling a story that follows the pattern of Elijah and Elisha at a point where Paul's authority is being established as being the very authority of Christ. Wow. Okay. So we're getting the symmetry of Two different stories here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So it's, it's that, that Elijah and Elisha, the layering of the similarities yeah. of those resurrection stories on top of this one, and then also a prior reference that Jesus has made to the work of Elijah and Elisha at a pivotal moment in his ministry, just as Paul is at a pivotal moment hmm. in his. 
Yeah. And that's the pattern we've been seeing with Paul in his miracles is that this is the spirit of Christ working through Paul, reinforcing the idea that the better name for the book of Acts is the Acts of Jesus Christ by the spirit through the apostles. That's right. We live in a possession and money obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. So Paul raises Eutychus from the dead. Jesus raises the spirit of Christ. Eutychus from the dead. Oh, you're so tricky. The Holy Spirit. Well, okay. (laughs) In the ministry of Paul. Sure. Okay. Great. Um, Yeah. Um, Was he? Is his resurrection like Jesus's resurrection? No. How is it different? Yes, we talked about this on the Apostles' Creed um, podcast. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that on the resurrection of the dead, and there are different kinds of resurrection. Um, there's a resurrection that we see, uh, described in scripture that is not like Jesus's because there is still an impending death for all of us. Eutychus is dead. Mm -hmm. Jesus's death is different because he is raised glorified in a new body and ascends into the heavens and is now eternally the God man. Our resurrections will be like that resurrection at one time, but Eutychus is, and Eutychus will experience that also. Yes. It just, he hasn't experienced that kind of resurrection yet. And that's not what's happening here. Right. I think we said in that Apostles' Creed episode that the resurrection of Lazarus, the resurrection of Eutychus, these are resurrections to what was. The resurrection of Jesus is a resurrection to what will be. That's right. Which which will one day, we, we we will have. There is actually another little clue in here that tells us that we're dealing with a resurrection story. Okay. And that is the mention of the first day of the week. It says they were meeting on the first day of the week. Hmm. And it would have jumped out at the original Hmm. audience in a way that it doesn't to us. But um, Jewish believers, we would assume, would have made the day of gathering 
on the Sabbath. Yeah. And yet the first day of the week is a shift that we see happen in the early mm. church. And I think this is the first time that we hear that mention made that this is the day that they're actually gathering mm. and you can feel a liturgy to what they're doing. Sure. They have a meal, there's yeah. preaching. Then the second breaking of bread here is believed to be the Lord's Supper that they take yes. together. Right. And so um, James Boyce, one of my favorite commentators, mm. mentions that um, one, of the, one of the key proofs in his mind that attests to the truth of the resurrection is that without any um, Jerusalem council meeting to yeah. send out a letter to do this or whatever, that there is this uniform agreement mm. among um, the early church that the day on which they will gather will be the day of the resurrection. So you see the day of resurrection mentioned at the opening of the story, mm-hmm. which would reinforce the idea that this that is, is a, a resurrection, resurrection story. story. Yeah. yeah, That's good, Jen. Things that, things that blow right past. Do you do that too? All the time. She's just a better Bible reader than, well, than I everybody. Well, I am teaching it too. So. <laughs> well, that's you a good guys, point. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. But I just feel like in my reading, those kinds of things, I mean, I'm just being candid here on air. But yeah, I think <laughs> there's just a lot of times I just One of the things I've right learned through. from Jen, and I'm also learning from the Bible Project, they call it hyperlinks mm-hmm. or like hotspots. Like what you're huh. really good at, Jen, is like yes. seeing literary... Uh, um, forms, forms, the- genres, like different things that like are alluding to other main passages and themes. And I think that's what I've tried to learn from you. Yeah. Specifically, I think where you're really good at this is seeing like decreation and creation narratives mm-hmm. or order and chaos and those kinds of things. Like those things in Genesis 1 through 3 are everywhere yeah. in the Bible. In the whole Bible. Uh, the Exodus motifs are everywhere in the Bible. And this is ultimately the, the imagination of the New Testament authors is so formed and shaped by the first, I mean, the f- first five books of the mm-hmm. Bible, but certainly the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature also. But but that's where I think uh, I've learned a lot from you. Well, I feel like what I'm learning more and more is that I think I mentioned uh, in previous uh, podcasts about how uh, Russ Ramsey says the Bible is written in thrift. And and so that these words, these these details that are in here, they're not in here by accident. He right. didn't he, he he didn't have like an editor who forgot, who forgot to take out the boring parts. These right. parts are in here for a reason. Mm. But we we have not learned to have a natural curiosity as we read. In fact, in some in some cases we've been trained out of a natural curiosity to where we're thinking, okay, but what do I do with this? To the point that we don't slow down to actually see what details are placed there to give us clues to the to the meaning of the text. So it's it's fun. To, it feels like going on a treasure hunt a little mm. bit. That's good. So from this moment, um, which I also love too, the fact that it says that Paul, you know, after he does this, he goes up and he he breaks bread, he eats, and he converses with him a long while. Like, I just feel like if this happened, I'd be like, absolutely like, "Ah!" like, no, let's go up and have communion and uh, chill out for a little while. But nope. Uh, Going ahead to the ship, though, they set sail. And then eventually what ends up happening is they, you know, it says at the very end, uh, not very end, but in chapter 20, verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past. Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So it sounds like he's trying to take this collection and mm-hmm. get it to Jerusalem by Pentecost. As soon as yes. possible. Yes. Yeah. So he's yeah. he- he's headed there. And he's aiming for a feast day, which makes mm-hmm. sense. So basically what you're seeing is he's, for whatever reason, he, he missed getting there by Passover. Like mm. maybe they couldn't do the collection quickly enough. Maybe the weather wasn't good in terms right. of sailing. And so his next big feast feast day to be there would be would be this one so he and he knows everybody's going to be there right. he knows that this is a yeah. big celebration yeah and also in the back I, I, you've already alluded to this jen but this is a big deal because the jerusalem church is very skeptical of his mission yes not the leaders necessarily yeah but those who are jewish converts or fulfilled right. jews uh but who are who are more comfortable seeing the mission of god go to 
the Jewish people go yes. to Israel and they're less comfortable seeing it go to Gentiles mm-hmm. and then wondering what does a Gentile have to do in order to be a Christian. Right. So Paul's journey here is to show the unity of the church and to show that God's mission is go to the Gentile has has gone to the Gentiles. And, and they're and they're contributing back to the mission of God through this offering. Right. And the, and the, and then the, the church in Jerusalem, like another reason this offering is significant is because the church in Jerusalem is beginning to feel the press of persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, Rome is starting to be concerned. And not only that, but for a Jewish Christian, uh, the Jewish community is like, what are you guys doing? This is like some cheap ripoff of Judaism over here with some other things sprinkled in, which is why I think you see so much of the tension of um, wanting to to adhere to Jewish practice. Yep. It's like, can we just keep our heads down and be as Jewish as possible while still following Christ? And so they bring this offering at a time when there actually have been real economic hardships associated mm-hmm. with being a follower of Christ. Well, I mean, yeah, so just to give our listeners kind of a time stamp on this, most scholars would say that the book of Acts was written about 62 to 64 AD, mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of as a moving range. Mm-hmm. But something massive happens in 70 AD. In 70 AD, the, the temple is destroyed. So you're right to point out that the tensions between Rome and uh, the Jewish state are getting very, building, very tense yes. at this time. Yeah. And so they're trying to curry favor, garner support, and be on unified mission together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're five years away from an oppressive state. Trying to squash a movement. Destroy, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. destroying the most prized possession in Jewish religion mm-hmm. and basically creating another exile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's all that going on, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, Consi- and Paul's taking the taking the short way, yeah. trying to avoid Ephesus, <laughs> trying to avoid Ephesus. But he ends up he ends up in Miletus, and mm-hmm. it says he sends uh, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of that church to come to him. Mm-hmm. It's about a 13 hour walking trip here, 63 miles. Yeah, so yeah. it's a, it's it's a hike, uh, and they came to him and they said to him. Essentially, listen. This is a long speech. I'm going to kind of boil it down because mm-hmm. it's a it. long passage. He says, "I'm going to Jerusalem." I don't know what's going to happen. Here's some warnings about what you should expect. And, and it's, in essence, his speech is preparation. Mm-hmm. He's trying to prepare the church at Ephesus to, like, hey, I may not, I may not be back again. We may mm-hmm. not talk This again. is probably mm-hmm. it. This is probably it. And you guys need to be prepared to lead this thing. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what he gives them, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And in, but what a model of humility. Oh, my I mean, goodness. He talks yeah. about his ministry. My ministry is one of humility. It's tears and trials. Mm-hmm. I don't consider my life my own. This is the Lord's life to be lived through me. And then he also reminds them, pay careful attention to yourself. Devote mm-hmm. your life to holiness, mm-hmm. to doctrine, to caring for the church that God is entrusting to you. Mm-hmm. It's really a, a pastoral ministry book in short. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, here, here's mm-hmm. what it's like to, yes. to be a minister of the word of God over yeah. the church. You're gonna, you're gonna, you need to walk in humility. Lots of tears, lots of trials. Yep. Your life is no longer your own. Guard your life and doctrine. Yeah, yep. and well, and we're about to get into a, there was there can be confusion as you get into this part of the text because Paul basically says, "I'm constrained." In verse twenty-two, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, and then he says, "Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me." Hmm. So, um, what we start to see is a a parallel to Jesus progression toward Jerusalem and Paul's 
progression toward Jerusalem. Mm. Um, but what we'll see is then other people start hearing the same kinds of things from the Spirit, and they respond to them after the pattern of Peter. You know, they're mm-hmm. saying, no, it must not be that you would go there to right. suffer. You ought not to. But when you're reading through these warnings, it can sound like the Spirit says to Paul one thing and then says to other people another thing. Yeah. Spirit is saying the same thing, and there are two different reactions to it. Yeah. Paul's reaction is beautiful and yep. not often focused on, I think, the way that it's that it's woven into the rest of the story. Because verse 22, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Mm. Literally, and in most translations, it says, I'm going to Jerusalem bound yeah. by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so Paul understands himself to be a man bound. Mm-hmm. Uh he will be a man literally bound. It will be mm. prophesied that he is bound and he will be bound, mm-hmm. but he knows already he is bound. He is not bound by the burdens of Rome or right. by the bounds of anyone who will place him in shackles. Mm. He is bound, constrained by the spirit. Mm. So it's, it's a, it's a beautiful and powerful image that starts here in Paul on the lips of Paul and then is carried forward all the way through the rest of his imprisonment. And this becomes a major theme for the early church, who is then going to be persecuted by Rome, yeah. is they view uh, Jesus as kind of turning his face like Flint to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. Paul here yes. doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then you have early pastors like Justin Martyr yeah. looking, looking to these passages as examples of what he's about to walk through. He's yeah. not taken to Jerusalem. But he's taken to Rome and he's doing the same thing. He's writing letters to churches, telling them, here's how we can be faithful to the Lord in the midst of of persecution, in the midst of uh, lies and deceit and trials and tears. Mm-hmm. And so the early church, like these passages, we talk about persecution a lot. And, but for them, like martyrdom was the call to follow in Christ. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a step forward in obedience to be bound by the spirit and bound by obedience to say, my life is no longer my own. It's Christ's. Yeah. Whew. This passage is, especially the last part here, 36 through 38, mm-hmm. it makes me misty eyed mm-hmm. when I read it. Um, it says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And, uh, you know, he's instructed them. He's told them, he's prepared them, he has modeled for them mm-hmm. the way of Jesus, mm-hmm. and here he is, and in some ways, they're com- they are praying for, mourning, commissioning him to death. To death. Mm-hmm. This, right. is, this is his Matthew 16 moment, carry yeah. your cross and follow me. Yeah. yeah. Um. And just the picture of like walking him to the ship. Right. Like you just think about like the disciples following along in the trail to Golgotha, right? You mm-hmm. just get this sense of like a real heartache. And I think that if you've ever been a part of a commissioning service, mm. um, then you know it's sometimes at the village we use the language gospel goodbyes, mm-hmm. um, which is good. Um, but it doesn't really capture how you feel Mm -hmm. right. Mm -mm. When somebody's being sent out that you love like this. And particularly when you're sending somebody off to a place where you don't know, yeah, like what's going to happen? Yeah. You know? Um, and yet there's this real heartache and this real weeping of, uh, of longing for, for Paul to not have to go. Mm -hmm. And yet he's bound by the spirit. 
I think you're right to slow us down here because it can be easy to fly by a passage like this and mm. think, oh man, that must have been sad. That must yeah. have been hard for them. Yeah. And then you just keep going. Yeah. But like to slow down here and realize that obedience is costly sometimes and it doesn't just cost Paul here. It costs his friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It costs the people that he's been doing ministry with. And there was real, I think the word that you used is right, heartache. Mm. Like this is a very, very painful decision. Mm. But yet he's called to it. Yeah. And, and the life of ministry is often... Is often that. I think the the opening line that he gives is the one that just really smacks me in the face. This is why I think that they are weeping and they're reacting the way that they do. Because in verse 18, he leads with, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And I think, man, could I say that? Like, hmm. On my departure from somewhere, could I say, no, you know, like, you know how I've lived. Like, he's basically saying my actions and my words are consistent. Mm-hmm. You know that I am who I put myself out there to be. Yep. And so I think that their response to his whole speech indicates um, that they believe him, like he has great credibility with them, and also that they love him deeply. And, and and that's why they're responding the way that they are. But um, I think you read like you read statements like that that Paul makes. And you're like, well, yeah, I mean, that's Paul. You know, Paul was like larger than life. You almost feel like he's presented to us almost as a caricature. I don't yeah. think he is, but right. I think that's the way it can come across. And so then what am I supposed to do with that? Right. Like, And, and, and I, I think it's one of those Paul was faithful in great things. Mm-hmm. But according to this statement here, he was also faithful in the small things. Absolutely. And if. And it, that's where all faithfulness begins, right? Yep. With the small things the Lord entrusts to us. And we yep. all have those things that we can say, could it be said about me? You yourself know. Yeah. That, that story. Yeah. That one. <laughs> you got to go, would anybody care if I left? Yeah. No, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Some no, gospel goodbyes are great. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Peace out. Oh, so Paul, uh, okay. it, says, it says he parts from him and he said, sell. Came by a straight course to coast, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, he went aboard and set sail. So we get this idea of him coming to uh, Cyrus, and then once we get to verse well, 7, um, it says, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. And stay with him. This is Philip, who we've met earlier. You guys remember Philip, yeah? Uh, I do. Yes, I um, do. He's a girl dad, guys. He's a girl dad. Hashtag girl dad here. <laughs> uh, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And so after these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. So this is an interesting encounter right here with Agabus and with Philippi, uh, with Philip, not Philippi, uh, with Agabus and Philip. We've got this, some real narrative detail here Mm -hmm. (laughs) for unmarried daughters who prophesy Mm -hmm. is 
Philip's got four unmarried daughters who prophesy, but then Agabus comes up and he's got something to say Mm -hmm. and he says something. Well, and both Philip and Agabus are people we've met previously in the book of Acts. Philip was chapter eight. You remember him. He's the Ethiopian eunuch. And it's a, he's not the Ethiopian eunuch. He meets with the Ethiopian. (laughs) I've never seen that with with four daughters, guys. Uh, No, that would be hard. But it says he's one of the seven and that's meant to cue us to be like, oh, that's right. When they chose deacons, he was one of the seven deacons Mm -hmm. back all those um, um, years ago. And in fact, we don't have a sense of this because we've just been sort of, you know, yes. moseying through the book of Acts, but it's been 25 years that have gone by That's since crazy. that story happens in the text. Well, ho- hold on, hold on. Let's just make sure that we, that the listener hears this. So the, between the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch mm-hmm. and the story we're getting here, mm-hmm. which in a Bible might be, let's well, say we're it's, in chapter 20, it's 10 pages yeah. maybe in your Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 25 years. Yeah. I just want years. I want that to sink in because you're right. The chronology here, mm-hmm. it's easy to conflate, if, especially if you're reading these chapters boom, boom, boom fast, then you might just feel like this just happened. Right. But it didn't. No, it's it didn't. 25 years ago. And in fact, Agabus, he was in chapter 11. He's the one who predicted the famine that was going to hit Judea and they took up an offering at that time. And that uh, happened about 15 years earlier wow. than, than the current story that we're in. So not only is Agabus a prophet, but he's a prophet who has been shown to prophesy accurate things previously in the book of Acts. And so here he is again, and he's a little bit of a downer this time, um, as he was the last time, to be fair. And, and he, he gives this... This prediction about the binding of Paul, which is why it's important that we remember that Paul has already actually prophesied the binding of Paul himself. Hmm. He has said, I'm bound for Jerusalem. And so now Agabus says, this is the way that you will be bound. And and everybody else is terribly upset by it. And we yeah. even had a mention earlier in verse 4 where it says that through the Spirit, people were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. They don't want him to suffer. So, again, these references to the way that Christ was responded to as he set his face like flint. Um, and so the prophecy is given. And then we see very shortly that the prophecy comes true. Um, and he says, he basically says in verse 13, I am ready to be bound. Like, I am bound by the name of the Lord Jesus is essentially what he says. I'm ready to even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so here um, we we should be thinking of the sons of Sceva at yeah. this moment yeah. who wanted to trade on the name of Jesus for profit. Right. And by contrast, now we see Paul who says, no, 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 I'm willing to lay down my life for that name. Yeah. He's willing to just so, – so what you're saying is that – we should see, we should hear a callback here mm-hmm. to an instance in which people wanted to make their name great mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. trafficking on the name of Jesus. Yes, and by contrast, Paul mm. says, "No, my, my name needs to be you know his name is the name above all." As he says in in Philippians, you know, that's the name. Yep, it's pretty cool. Man, Paul has a seriousness about the work of the Lord that is remarkable. Right? I mean, verse fourteen: since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said. Let the will of the Lord be done. Right. Like they can tell by his right. response, you know, this is, this is meant to silence all of these, hey, don't do that. Hey, don't do that. Right. You know, that they, they recognize in his resolve, no, this must be what's next. And he heads there. He goes to Jerusalem. He returns to Jerusalem. And Hang an- on. So, was Agabus's prophecy right? I don't know. Okay, so one no. of the main things in this text is thinking about, is Agabus a prophet? Yep. So this, this text in particular has been the subject of a lot of conversation between continuationists and cessationists. Okay. Because continuationists would say that 
prophecy in the Old Testament has ceased, but now there is lowercase p prophecy that is a miraculous gift of the Spirit that we would not expect to be authoritative, inerrant. It's just a it's a different kind of speech from God that a continuationist would say is continuing to happen that we wouldn't say is like God's word. Cessationists would say, no, 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 all prophecy has ceased. There is not a capital P prophecy and a lowercase p prophecy. This is one of the central texts because Agabus is called a prophet and cessationists would say, or sorry, continuationists would say, here we have an example of the prophecy being right in general, but wrong in its very, very specific details. Therefore, when we receive a word from the Lord, it doesn't have to be 100% accurate. Whereas a cessationist would say it this kind of prophecy could be right in its big picture, but has ceased and means that therefore all subsequent prophecy, even to today, should be just as accurate. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I'm inclined to... Well, so, wait, I, so you're saying that because specifically he was not bound with his hands and feet with I'm his belt... I'm not saying anything. Right. I'm saying, <laughs> no, I'm saying, yeah. is that the way that the argument is built? Is it because yes. it doesn't... Okay. It's, it's, it's not wrong specific. in its granular details right. of what he said. <laughs> Yeah. So a continuationist already... wants it. Not they don't want it to be wrong. They're trying to use this as an example. See, he gets it a little bit wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that's what we, we should expect in prophecy. Mm-hmm. See, but that I guess part of me is I'm bringing my 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 conviction into it because that I presuppose that prophecy in the New Testament and Old Testament are not the same thing. Right. Because of office stuff. Yep. I don't yep, think yep, that yep. office carries over. Agreed. So um so yeah, for I think me, it's also possible to say he wasn't wrong. Right. Like to say, yeah, he, he maybe didn't get the, the Maybe Luke didn't record the details the same mm-hmm. way, but he's using the same word of thus says the Lord, and here's what happened to Paul. And there's a term called paradidomy that is used in both contexts to show that Luke is connecting what is prophesied about Paul's trip to Jerusalem and what actually happens. Right. Well, so, and, Paul, so Paul's making the connection. Luke is. It, Luke is. And but like generally, yeah. prophetic language is poetic language, and I think that you see a poetic use of language in what Agabus says. Mm-hmm. I also think we've already seen all of this stuff throughout the book of Acts about when does baptism happen? When do they get the spirit? You know, like there's all of this sort of like, what's the what's yeah. the proper order? What's the proper? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I, I kind of, I would question, I mean, I haven't, I haven't spent time, you know, looking into this particular thing, but I'm wondering why you would even use this story to answer that question, because yeah. I don't think the book of Acts is trying to answer that question. I don't think this story is trying to answer a question of what's the nature of prophecy. Yeah, it's certainly not giving us guidelines on prophecy. Right. But it could be an instance, I guess, of prophecy. And I think that the question of – I'm certainly – like when I've read this, I've only ever read it as Agabus was right. Right, yeah. I've only ever read it as like, wow, Agabus in his – So Grudem in his book on uh, on, uh, the continuation of gifts tries to highlight that Agabus is wrong as an example of New Testament prophecy being different than Old Testament prophecy and not needing to be 100% accurate. Yeah, that seems reaching to me. Well, I mean I don't think we need to make a conclusion (laughs) here. Why don't you call a and tell him? (laughs) But I think you're right to say and to speak specifically about office has a lot lot to do here and these two kinds of prophecy are intentionally different. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Wow, I did not know about this. It's a big like this is the text. Funny. Yeah. That's that seems weird to me. It does seem strange. But ink has been spilled over stranger uh, stranger <laughs> questions or stranger objections. Uh, well, we, we're going to leave uh, here at this moment with Paul uh, in Jerusalem, identified in the temple and arrested. That's where we're going to leave just, here. Today. I just thought of something. That's, what? Oh, my gosh. Should I'm, I'm teeing up the cliffhanger. Right I know, here. but like I, it just came to me. Okay. Are you guys trying to trying to throw him Agabus under the bus? Under the Agabus. <laughs> under the Agabus. That was not. <laughs> oh my gosh! Producer Ryan <laughs> rolled her eyes so hard that the room not, spun. That are did you, not are kill. You, I, that I is know, a sermon I, that did not kill. <laughs> it's late. <laughs>
We will leave it here with Paul identified and arrested in Jerusalem, and we will pick that up the next time that we chat through Acts. If there's anything that you heard us talk about, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. In our next episode, we will take a look at Paul on trial. I thought about it like a Law and Order episode. <laughs> Paul on trial. <laughs> Executive produced by Dick Wolf. I'm sorry, I've watched a lot, a lot of Law Ripped and Order. from today's headlines. <laughs> <Right. laughs> See you next time. Grace and peace. <laughs>